Shalhevet High School presents the Radical Moderation Podcast. Here's your host, Rabbi Ari Siegel. Hello and welcome back to the Radical Moderation Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Siegel. Before I tell you about our guest today, please do me a favor, do us a favor, do the world a favor, and give us a five-star rating on iTunes, and in particular, write a review at the bottom, because that is the way the algorithm works. If you give us a five-star rating but don't write a review, that's wonderful, but giving us a five-star rating and writing a review is helpful to bump us up the rankings so other people can hear us. Also, uh, follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at RadModeration, and our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash Radical Moderation. Today, uh, I am pleased to share with you a interview I did with uh, David Frum. David is a conservative writer and pundit. He was born in Canuxtian, which is in Canada. I had a chance to talk with him about his by now famous debate with Steve Bannon that has gone viral on the internet, his opinion on the Trump presidency and how it's impacting us as a nation and the world at large, and finally, his advice to me as a head of school. I think you'll really enjoy it. I loved it. It was one of my most enjoyable podcasts. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Can you share with the listeners what you're reading now? Um, I know you're a prolific author. What are you reading? Um, I, that's a great question. I read, at any given moment, two books. Um, one on paper and one as an audiobook. So I have a book always with me. Uh, my usual pack, practice is to read nonfiction on paper and to listen to fiction on audio, but right now, I'm, both books are, are nonfiction. And they're, they're covering the same period. Um, one is very controversial book published a decade ago about the firebombing of Germany called The Fire. Um, a man called George Friedrich. Um, and on audiobook, I'm listening to um, a book about the period immediately after World War II, the denazification of Germany. And what was uh, controversial about that first book, The Fire? Um, the, the, the Fire uh, is controversial because in a very value-free way, it just mercilessly details the human cost of what it was to be on the receiving end of the Anglo-American air bombardment. Huh. Uh, that, and, um, and just without, while the author makes no excuses for Nazi crimes, um, he also doesn't invoke Nazi crimes. He just tells the story of the bombing. And it's, it's a horrific, horrific story, um, both in terms of human life and cultural damage. And, um, very um, obviously, and you know, there's testimony to this. Much of it motivated not by military considerations, but just by the desire to inflict pain. And huh. You understand why people had those feelings at the time, but as as we look back on it from this perspective, um, I mean, the book is about German suffering, and that's an uncomfortable topic. Is that is that something that's interesting because it's a, it's kind of like a single narrative. Often you have books that try to paint both sides, and you're reading a book that's a single narrative. Is that is that your uh, mantra of perspective taking? Is that why you're reading this book? Well, I, I'm I'm reading. I'm actually doing now a reading binge about post-war German history. Um, the uh, and I know you want to start this light, and now we're going serious right now. <laughs> I, I was going to make that comment. I'm the host, David. You need to, I need to say those things. It's one of the things that happens to me. Is we, we're, supposed, we're trying to do light. We're trying to do light. Um, uh, I, I'm very interested in how you build a democratic culture. And German history after 1945, and Germany today is such a 
model society, um, uh, such a strong democracy, such a liberal society. Uh, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't easy to do, and it didn't happen so quickly. And understanding that achievement um, seems even more urgent than usual at a time when so much of the world seems to be going backward, retreating from democratic values. Got it. I was going to ask if this is just for personal edification or you are trying to kind of graft it towards what we're seeing here in America or in other democratic, but you answered that. All right, let me go. Let me go light here. Do you drink coffee? I often ask my listeners about coffee. I drink a lot of coffee. Okay. What is the most, what's your most important element of a good cup of coffee? Like what's your order? Where do you (laughs) go? Give me some information. Well, I, I drink coffee black um, and without sugar. So I'm very conscious of, of the taste of coffee. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, I like those uh, I like those very intense French roasts. Thank you for asking. Um, I love uh, the French press, but it is messy. Um, and so we uh, I don't always uh, indulge myself in that. Oh, David, I'm about to out myself. So I'm a huge French press drinker. Four minutes in my French press every morning. I make three or four presses for the other faculty and, and administration here at the school. I drink a, a, a blend or a roast called Kicking Horse. Uh, do you have a particular favorite blend? I, I, I do. Um, I, I'll say that the most, but the most important thing, I worry less about that. The, um, uh, I, my main coffee duty is um, two of our children are now um, out of the home and um, our, our last is in her second last year of high school and, and she's really quite self-sufficient. So it's much quieter in our house than it used to be. So, so um, as thanks for many, many years of getting up early and making lunches, our, our small domestic luxury is um, I make my wife two cups of coffee uh, every morning in bed and she, she likes it super milky and super frothy. And there are all kinds of particular things about the proportion of cinnamon and cocoa and no sugar. <laughs> and, and, and I just... It's just like one of those things I, I, so I really focus on that because I, I do those two things and then she does for the rest of the day, the rest, she does everything for me. But if I just do those two things for her, then, uh, uh, then I, I don't, it doesn't seem super fair, but it seems to work. You know what they say, a caffeinated wife is a happy life, David. <laughs> <laughs> All right, two more fun. I'm I'm glad I didn't ask you about like fair trade because that would have gotten more serious. So I'm just yeah. Okay, two more questions for those of our listeners. They don't know you're Canadian. Is that's mm-hmm. accurate? Correct. That's my research. Yes, I, I was born in Toronto. Um, I I went to high school there, and I'm still very involved in Canadian life. I have a house, um, but in a very rural area of Canada, a couple of hours east of Toronto, and I, I'm um, I'm often there. My sister's a member of the Canadian Senate. The member of the Canadian Senate. Wow. Yes. Uh, what's, so what's the most Canadian thing? First of all, curling or hockey? Oh, hockey. <laughs> no, hockey. does any, is that like a thing? Do you do curling? No, nobody. No. I mean, it's <laughs> Saskatchewan, but like, no, hockey's a major spectator sport. Curling is, is an activity. I think we actually have to get to the podcast itself, but I'm a Washington Capitals fan. So I am the reigning, I'm a fan of the reigning Stanley Cup champions. Just FYI. So is my son. <laughs> oh, oh, you're right. You're in DC. You have not adopted them. I, I, I'm not such a big sports fan, but my, my son is just a maniac for the Capitals, and oh. and um, uh, and he says he can forgive because of Ovechkin. He can forgive Putin a lot of things that I like. <laughs> I love it. They've got another player, by the way, Burakovsky, who I always assumed was Russian, but he's not. He's like Swedish or something like that. But uh, ah, next time I'm in D.C., I'd love to catch a game with your son. You can, you can make us coffee before we leave. <laughs> All right. Last 
softball fun question. So do you know the etymology of your last name? I have no idea what it is. I'm just, it's funny from a off the, you know, just from a Jewish perspective in Orthodox circles and the, my listeners span different religions, different denominations, but I happen to be Orthodox. It means very religious, your last yeah. name from. So yes. what, what is the etymology of your last name? Well, I, here's what I've noticed. Is it, um, I get asked this question a lot because it's often assumed that frums or frumkins are related to one another. And as best I can tell, that's not true. That uh, frum or frumkin was a functional description, like, like Rabban. Um, and frums were typically um, lay preachers. Uh, that is, they were, they were not Cohens, they were not levies, and they didn't have the learning of, of a Rabban. But they, especially in more remote settlements, um, they were just people who, who you know, they're like Jewish Pentecostalists, basically. Wow. Um, and so you, if you had an ancestor who at the time that last names were applied to, to the Jews, which was in different, different parts of Eastern Europe at different periods between about 1830 and 1880, um, the, the local empires, German, Austro-Hungarian, Russian, imposed last names on, on the Jews. Uh, and if, if at that time you had an ancestor who was fulfilling this role, you got the name Frum or Frumkin. But I think it was also sometimes rather cruelly applied if you if there's a rather mean local administrator it might be applied to the village drunkard um, ah. as, as a way because you you i just i, I encounter enough people with, with cognate versions of the Froome name you say well what were your ancestors like and you think you know what that that may have been applied derisively rather than respectfully right it's tongue-in-cheek you should do a 23 and me genetic test and see which well, one <laughs> well, you, know, you know how these things would happen um and the story of jewish last naming is pretty interesting that they would um you know depend again it would depend on the local administrator um and how respectful or disrespectful the administrator was so that uh, if you were a Cohen or a Levy, that became your last name. Um, if you were a Raban or a lay preacher, you get Raban or Frumkin as your last name. Um, if you had a little bit of money and could pay for a nicer name, you got a nice name like uh, Goldberg or Rosenthal. Hmm. Uh, it, it, uh, if you didn't, you might get some kind of derisive or mean name. If you were in the Prussian territory, you might take the name of the city that was closest, you know, Bamberger or, or Hamburg, you know, Bamberger or Frankfurt or something like that. Uh, but failing all of that, if you are just a common Jew and had no money and no special claim, what they would do is they say, okay, right. Um, uh, we're going to call you white, black, big, little, white, black, big, little, Schwartz, Weiss, Klein, Gross. Schwartz, Weiss, Klein, Gross. Wow. And it was just oh, like, like shirts and skins. And those, those were the names that you had. That if your name is Schwartz, Weiss, Klein, or Gross, what that meant was your ancestors were just common people, peasants, you know, ordinary workers, and had no influence, no pull, no ability to get a fancy name like Rosenthal or Goldberg. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like I need a new podcast about Jewish history, and that was amazing. I, I mean, of course, I knew all of that as the head of a Jewish day school and a rabbi. I know all of that. So that was, that was a review for me. I appreciate that. But for the listeners, maybe something new, David. Uh, okay, we're going to jump now into the meat uh, and potatoes of the podcast, the radical moderation piece. So you've been a leading voice among those who have come out against not just Trump himself, but a lot of his policies. Um, and at the same time, you're identified, or I, I believe, as a conservative. You worked uh, in the George Bush, the Sons White House. Uh, where do you kind of put yourself? Do you identify in a particular way? Do you think labels matter? Yeah, um, I think make labels matter a lot. They make life simpler. Um, I, if, you, if we just handle them with care and understand, they convey limited information. Um, I'm a registered Republican in the District of Columbia, where I live. Um, and uh, I 
although I'm very um, displeased with the current state of the Republican Party, not just the president. Um, it's an institution. I believe in institutions. Um, and I believe, at least I hope that I will live long enough to see the Republican Party playing, again, a responsible role in American life, which it has not done for a little bit. Um, I, uh, I, some of the things the president and his party have done are indeed things um, that I support, um, particularly on some of their Middle Eastern policies. I'm, I'm glad uh, the embassy is in Jerusalem. Uh, and I think they, the Trump people got a little lucky that the stars lined up when they were able to do that. Um, there were reasons why other administrations that wanted to do it did not do it. Um, there are objective factors having to do with the politics of the area that have receded during the Trump years. And so I think that's a welcome thing. Um, I, I, I reckon I, I, I welcome the um, step up of pressure on the Iranian regime. And, and there are large parts at home of the things like the, the tax cut. I didn't like all of it, but there are important elements of it that I did support, especially reduction in corporate income tax. Um, I remain broadly right of center free market person. Um, and um, with, I don't go along with all of that. I, I'm probably more environmentalist than most Republicans are, and I'm certainly more skeptical of, of guns than, than most Republicans are. But I, more fundamentally, whatever your policy prescriptions, I think all Americans, all citizens of any democratic country, more important than any particular policy is our shared commitment to the rules of the game, to the constitutional system. And I, if, if you lived in Great Britain and you were a social democratic person, a person on the left, I, I would hope that you would look at somebody like Jeremy Corbyn and say, this person is outside of the democratic tradition. This person does, does not respect the institutions of our society. So even if I somewhat agree with him on some things, I understand that now that the, these kinds of people have to be kept from power. And so he's here with, with Donald Trump and unfortunately with many of the Republicans who have chosen for very crash short-term reasons to empower and enable him. It's interesting. You describe yourself, at least if I were hearing what you just said, I hear you as sort of right of center on economic uh, issues. And then I think you said you're left of center or more progressive in terms of guns. Does that make sense? Is that how you would oh, describe oh, I, yourself? I don't, I don't know that it's even, I mean, it's unfortunate that, um, it's unfortunate that we think it's left of center to say, I don't think you should be able to take a loaded weapon into a bar. Right, right. Well, it is, by the way, that is left of center. Um, I just, I just think, uh, and if you have children in the house, your guns should be in a safe. And, and probably by the way, um, you know, uh, but by the way, if, if you want to go hunt, I mean, hunt, hunting is not my personal taste. Um, and I certainly um, am horrified by those people who go to Africa and shoot, um, you know, endangered, magnificent animals like elephants. But if you want to go duck hunting or deer hunting, um, if, if that's your sport, uh, you know, uh, it should be convenient and easy. And, and uh, you know, we don't, need, we don't need a lot of regulation of shotguns and, and rifles. Uh, but a handgun exists to kill people. And that there's, it's got no other purpose. And yes, people use it for sport, but what, what, do you, what, what is the sport preparing to kill people? That's what a handgun is for. And those ought to be, uh, the government ought to keep a pretty close eye on who has them and why. So you're, you're more focused on handguns than assault rifles? You're saying the assault rifle works for hunting? No, the assault rifle does not. The assault, assault, assault rifle is, no, I mean, a, a hunting rifle or a shotgun. Got it. Uh, if, you have, if you want a deer rifle, you know, go ahead. 
All right. You want a shotgun? Fine. Um, you know, as I said, I spent part of the year in a pretty rural part of Ontario. My neighbors all have a rifle or a shotgun, um, either to hunt or to, you know, to keep coyotes or foxes out of their chicken coops. Uh, but they don't have AR-15s um, because, uh, I mean, the AR-15 is all about a fantasy of being a killer. Right. And they don't have handguns because handguns exist to kill people. You know, it's interesting you said that. Uh thinking you should have guns in a safe or, you know, what any kind of reasonable gun measures put you left of center. Do you think there's a center anymore? I mean, just with the way everybody kind of plays themselves and uses the words and pushes against each other. Is there a center in politics in America? Um, okay, this is, a, this is maybe too big a thought for um, <laughs> our, our light conversation here. But here, here's what I basically think about all these kinds of issues. If Rip Van Winkle fell asleep in 1990 and woke up in 2015. He would, almost everything about the political system would be familiar. Bushes and Gingriches and Clintons, it would all be familiar. Um, And the way the game of politics was played, I mean, over those same 25 years, you know, we have the rise of, the worldwide web appears, China goes from being a very poor country to the world's second largest economy. you know, half, it was a 50% reduction in the number of people around the planet in extreme poverty. So we have this extraordinarily dynamic world, but a completely frozen American political system. Trump messed all of that up and scrambled everything. And we're living in a period now, like the period at the end of the Vietnam War, where the identity of the party system is being um, remodeled. And so I, I think there are, I think, most people are, have pretty moderate instincts. Um, they don't want to live through revolutions. They don't want to live through turmoil. They want the government to work. They want the passports to be printed on time. They want the air traffic control system to function. They want um, social security checks to be delivered. Uh, they don't want extreme behaviors. But we're in a moment when, partly when there's a lot of extremism has been invited by the aftermath of the Great Recession, uh, when the party map is in flux and and. So where people belong is not as clear as it was in those 25 years from 1990 to 2015. Do you see any value in it? I know Peter Thiel, who's, you know, sort of uh, goes against the grain in Silicon Valley, was excited about President Trump's uh, candidacy. I don't know that he necessarily supported President Trump and he got vilified for it. He did. But it sounded like he supported it because he liked the chaos. Felt like if Rip Van Winkle was waking up in 2015 from, you know, 1990 and there was no change, there was a problem with the system. And he thought Trump would shake the system, which he clearly has. Is there any value? Um, uh, I like toast. I'm not going to set my house on fire to make it. That's that. That's that's Colbarian. That's like he he once had a bit about a horse running around a hospital. <laughs> like I don't need yeah. to go that far. Interesting. Well, I mean, I, I mean, uh, no. I, I just think I just think that's. And I, I'm surprised that someone and Peter Thiel, who is a, a very analytic personality, obviously a very powerful intellect. Um, and by the way, I, I think what happens is what Peter Thiel is actually much more enthusiastic about Donald Trump than he always likes to let on. And so he says things like that as a way to backstop what is a much more enthusiastic agreement hmm. than it's maybe always convenient to say. Uh, but Donald Trump, for a whole host of reasons, obviously should not be president of the United States. Um, you know, he's uh, not morally or intellectually or 
by knowledge or experience in any way fit for the job. But he also, and because of those vulnerabilities, it's very hard for the democratic system to be safe as long as he's around. Let me just put it this way. If you've got, if you and your company have committed a lot of crimes over your lifetime, it's very hard for you to um, honor your oath and see that the laws of the United States be faithfully executed. Right. (laughs) Because you're on the wrong side of so many of them. We just learned today, I don't know if you saw this um, before you and I began this podcast, but the New York Times reported that uh, Donald Trump employed an illegal alien as his most intimate housekeeper at his Bedminster resort. And everyone at the Trump organization knew she was there illegally. And there are probably, as the Times notes in the same article, probably dozens of illegal workers at Bedminster and of course across the Trump properties. Um, Now that's not a crime to employ an illegal worker, but it is illegal. And uh, what is a crime is um, to employ fraudulent methods not to pay your taxes. And as the Times also reported, Donald Trump and his family used fraudulent, they, fraudulent means, illegal, criminal means to avoid paying taxes um, up to about 2002 when the Times documents run out. And maybe he turned over a new leaf at that point, or maybe he continued to deal with the taxes to the way he had done through all of his life and his father's life up to 2002. Um, and, and there are many others of these instances. So what you get with Donald Trump is um, a complete um, constant sense set of exposure and vulnerability of the chief executive to the legal system where he can never be safe so long as the legal system is properly functioning. Can you throw, I mean, like there are conservatives who are tuning into my podcast, seeing your name in the, in the subject line who like throw them a life raft. Did this all start with Obama pushing through universal health care? Is Trump right on some things or are you just, I mean, you well, sound like you, this is Trump's issue and Trump has really just ma- is ruining the democratic system. Is, is there anything well, redeemable here? Anything Donald, we can blame on the Democrats? I, I, uh, <laughs> um, I, when I, in the book I wrote about this, Trumpocracy, I opened by pointing out that the American political system has been working less and less well for a long time. And not just the American systems, but democratic systems all across the world. And one of the things I really stress about Donald Trump is you have to see him in line with his counterparts in other advanced democratic countries. There are Trumps in Germany, there are Trumps in Britain, there are Trumps in France, and they're coming from similar kinds of pressures and stresses. Um, So uh, we've got a global crisis of democracy, um, and I trace it back to the shock and pain of the Great Recession. In Europe, uh, to the shock and pain of the Euro, Euro currency crisis that hit about 2010, to the stresses and strains of um, massive global immigration, um, which has been, um, which is everywhere the proximate cause of the rise of these um, right of center authoritarian parties. Uh, I think there's a crisis in what is happening to the wages of um, the non college male part of the population, especially those people who come from the local ethnic majority. So these are stress factors that are in place everywhere. And different societies are, are, seeing, are seeing different reactions to them. Um, I mean, what, what is, Trump is a kind of gaudier personality than some of these others. Um, but the crisis of democracy is, is if, if Donald uh, is, is um, going to be with us, even after Donald Trump ceases to be. And so as much of a challenge and threat as Donald Trump is, and as I say, it's not so much exactly because he 
so consciously means to be a threat. The problem is he's in, he's in legal jeopardy all the time, even before the Russia collusion. He did collude with Russia. Plus, he hates being criticized, and so he can't stand a free press. So he got a lot of vulnerabilities, both legal and characterological, that make him a kind of an extremist. But but you know, you've got the alternative for Germany. You've got the National Front in France. You've got these extremist parties all over the continent of Europe. They all come from the same place that Donald Trump comes from. All right, let's. I feel depressed right now. Let's move to a more positive <laughs> uh, piece. Uh, so, even though people may be listening to this at a different time, um, George Herbert Walker Bush uh, recently passed away, um, and I know that you had a relationship, a close relationship with his son. You were involved uh, in his uh, presidency. Did you have any interaction with uh, the father, with George Herbert Walker Bush? Could you share? Uh, yeah. I- I don't have anything really of note. Um, I was not a Bush family friend. I, I, I was an employee of the Sun, not a uh, not any kind of a friend. Or I was an employee of the government. Um, but of course, I was uh, um, like all those. I, I, I lived through that period and, and watched George H. W. Bush at, at work. And I think there are a lot of ways in which he has been an underappreciated president. Let me point to one of the most signal achievements. Um, and maybe it's because of my Canadian origins that I'm interested in this, which is it used to be the one of the most important environmental problems we had in the North American continent was acid rain. Um, uh, sulfur dioxide emissions would rise into the air, they'd mingle with other pollutants, they'd mingle with the water, uh, and they would then seed the clouds and then fall back to earth as rain laden with sulfuric acid and kill lakes all over the Northeastern United States and and Canada. And George H.W. Bush made this a priority, working with his Canadian counterpart, Brian Mulroney, delivered one of the eloquent eulogies at George H.W. Bush's funeral. Um, They worked on a plan that has cut sulfur dioxide emissions by almost 70% since 1990. And acid rain, I mean, the lakes are still recovering. It hasn't, it's not like this problem has vanished. We're still dealing with the aftermath. But we're not making it any worse, and you can see real improvement, and that's an incredible legacy. I want to say something else about what you just said about being negative, though. Um, because in, in telling people the problem, the, the reason you talk about problems is not in order to depress them. It's to empower them and inspire them. And one of the things that I think has been exciting about the past two years has been watching people step up and re-engage in the political system. And I end my book with a chapter about reasons for hope. And I, I see so many of them. So uh, I guess I'll encourage everyone to to read that. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I, I I find it depressing, but I agree. Meaning that that uh, the darkness is where you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Let me ask you about a debate that I I think a lot of people talked about are talking about uh, that you had with uh, with Steve Bannon, Bannon, yeah. who's one of the most famous or I guess infamous figures of this Trump era. Um, you know, you made a decision to to debate him. Um, can you talk me through that? Because I think he's, you know, that's almost seen as normalization of, yeah. uh, of this administration to debate Steve Bannon. What, can you talk me through your decision to debate him? How did you prepare for the debate? Yes. Well, so Steve Bannon is not merely, um, was not merely the uh, chairman of the campaign of a president of the United States, but he's also um, a central linking figure in this far right 
Association across Europe. I mean, he's an advisor to the current government of Italy. He's been an advisor to the National Front in, in France. Um, he's been very close to Nigel Farage and the Brexiteers in England. Uh, he's close to the Bolsonaro government in Brazil. And he, where he, and what he brings these people together and raises a lot of money, which he distributes to these uh, parties. Um, so when you say, when people say, why are you giving them a platform? I said, you, you, when you ask me that question, you are completely inverting the relationship of power and celebrity of myself and Steve Bannon. It's not, a, he would remain a very important person on this earth, whatever I said or did. It is not up to me to make him more or less important. He is authentically an important person. Um, I was eager, I was glad to accept the invitation to do this debate. Um, and you can watch the whole thing on, on a number of platforms, YouTube, Facebook. Um, there's a link to it on uh, my davidfrom.com web website. The debate was organized for the Friday before the Tuesday vote in Toronto, a place, a, the main city of a country that has been especially targeted by Trump's attack on the Western Alliance. And through the past two years, there has been a feeling among, among people who adhere to traditional liberal democratic norms that the situation's hopeless, uh, that the, the Trumps and the alternatives for Germany and the Brexiteers, they all have the upper hand. They, they've been winning most of the fight since 2014 have been won by this kind of politics. And I thought it would be a service on the Friday before the Tuesday midterm vote to stand on a platform with one of the leading architects of this movement, not just in this country, look him in the eye and say, you're going to lose. You're going to lose Tuesday. You're going to lose badly. Uh, and the tide is turning and it's turning. It begins in the United States, but it's going to spread around the world. And it is important to remember, just as it was important to remember in other dark times, that authoritarians, communists, fascists, they always claim to be the wave of the future. Anna Mora Lindsberg, and the wife of the anti-Semitic aviator Charles Lindbergh, she wrote a book in 1941 called The Wave of the Future, which is all about, you know, she loved democracy as much as the next person. It just broke her heart to have to say that it was doomed and the Nazis were going to win the war. Well, you know, three years later, all of Germany is two feet high, as we were saying at the beginning of this conversation. Um, and it's important to look people and say, it is that, Liberal democracy is stronger than it looks. It looks chaotic, it looks messy, it looks disorganized, and it's hard to galvanize people to defend it, but it's important. And people, one of the things you mobilize people with is not just by frightening them, but also by giving them hope and inspiration and confidence. And so that's what I was trying to do on that stage, is to say, it's worth it. It will work. Stand up. Uh, you don't need my uh, approbation, but I, I thought you were—you did an amazing job in that in that uh, debate. I did find him unnervingly charming. I mean, like he's painted in this as this monster, and I—I I guess I find this with a lot of people who there's a caricature of them, uh, and then you meet them. I remember meeting Governor Perry when I was in Texas. He wasn't painted as a monster; he was painted as this buffoon. And then you met him, and he was charming and brilliant, and like you were like, "Whoa, this is amazing." You find it's him huge, huge country um, with a lot of competition. You do not rise to the top of systems without being good at things. Um, I mean, every once in a while you meet someone at the top of the system who's, who's kind of a doofus. Um, but they all have something or they wouldn't be there at all. Even Donald Trump, who's a doofus in so many ways, um, he has a really keen understanding of human nature. I mean, it is amazing just how many strong-willed people um, surround him saying, I will control him and end up being controlled by him. Yeah. Uh, he's, got, he's got a strength. And that's true of Bannon. Um, that that uh, Bannon's not nobody. Bannon's not nothing. 
Did you find that Bannon like sort of landed any punches? Did you feel like there was something he said in that uh, where you maybe were like, oh, okay, I hear that? Or, or it was what you expected and, and you accomplished what you had intended? I do feel I accomplished what I intended. I don't experience this as a blow. I, I think um, one of the things I said, I anticipated that he might say it. So I said it first. Bannon and I have in the past agreed on a lot of things. I was in a, a movie, one of, I was one of the guests in one of his movies a decade ago. Um, I am in agreement with him that a lot of traditional republicanism failed in the Bush years and in the crisis of, in the, of the Great Recession. I'm in agreement with him that very large-scale immigration is destabilizing. I'm in agreement with him that um, the, tr- the, the kind of ancient slogans of Paul Ryan just don't describe the world of today. Uh, and one of the, another reason why I wanted to um, speak with him in this way was we have a lot in common, but I, I feel like that scene in the, in the movie where, you know, um, Spider-Man and the villain of the moment encounter each other and the villain says, we are not so different, you and I. And we do have a lot in common. And the, the, so one of the things that I, um, I find him an especially interesting person is, especially given his many gifts, he could have used this analysis for good. And instead, he put it, uh, and he's right about many of his diagnoses are right, but he has put it in the service of destruction. And um, so I said to him on stage, we can agree with a lot of your critique, but the faults and defects of a basically good system do not justify overthrowing that system and replacing it with an evil system. Hmm. Are there any ideologies you wouldn't debate with or engage with a neo-Nazi. Uh, I mean, I, that, that's, that's going all the way to the edge there, but well, are there ideologies or racist ideologies? Even well, if the person was very well known and you wanted to speak truth to power, are there ideologies you wouldn't give a platform to? Look, there are a lot of things I wouldn't do because I would say I'm not the person to do it. I mean, the, the, that if the debate is with Steve, precisely because Steve Bannon and I have some things in common, it makes sense for me to be on the stage with him. Um, there are a lot of other debates that we say, would you do it? And I would say, no. I mean, I, I would, for example, I would not debate someone who's anti-evolution um, because, as I, for among other reasons, because let a proper biologist uh, do it. I'm, I'm not here as a, you know, you know, I'm not the only person in the world. Um, but I think in general, we need to understand that, de- that de- of course, I agree, debate has its limits. Um, and the question is sometimes asked, and here's, a, here's sort of the most pungent answer. The question is, well, would you debate Hitler? To which my answer was, if I were a German liberal in 1926, I would. And I would debate him in 1926 because I realized in 1926, the debate will stop him. It, I mean, Hitler had like 2% of the vote in, in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there may come a time when if debate fails, you have to use other methods. Um, by 1933 or four, the only way you could stop him is by assassination. And by after 1940, the only way you can stop them is with a global war. But so different. There are. I, I'm not a great believer that debate is always the answer. But there are times when it's the right thing to do, um, and there are times when you are the person to do it. And other times when it's the wrong thing to do. I, I don't. I'm not categorical about this. I, I don't. I'm not a. I'm not someone who believes that it's always the right answer. I just believe. I happen to believe that in this case it was right. And. I submit the final product to the world as evidence and you can view it for yourself and evaluate it for yourself. Okay, I've got three questions to end us. They're, they're about education. I'm the head of a school and, and yes. uh, this is something we grapple with uh, often. So- Good for you for doing that. 
thank you. I, I appreciate it. And, and thank you for doing what you do. I mean, just even so, some of the answers you've given have shifted my perspective that, that the most, uh, the response just now about whether debates sort of, uh, give somebody a platform as opposed to seeing where it is in the context of that, the growth of that idea. And maybe it's the right time is, is early to debate it rather than, you know, waiting to see if it grows and then whether it's worthy of a debate and it's too late at that point. So I really, uh, really appreciate that. So we often think about educating our students and time is limited and we have to figure out what message are we giving them about civics and civic responsibility and politics? Would you recommend we educate students to find the center or would you recommend that we educate students to find the, the, their deeply held opinion on one of the polls, but to be respectful of others, to have empathy for others? And I know that's, uh, you know, you could say both, but if you had to pick, where, where would you direct young, uh, you know, schools to educate our young people? Well, in the specific realm of, of, of civics, um, I would educate first, I would want people to understand, I would, I would want them to understand how things really work. Um, I just, it's one of the things that is very striking when you talk to young people or people in medicine is they have magical ideas about politics. And, and so when the president doesn't make all the problems of the world go away, or uh, this, you saw this very much with Obama, that young people put a lot of hope in Obama. Um, Obama then discovered the usual constitutional limits on the presidency and his followers would not accept those limits. They, and they, they became disillusioned and disappointed. And there's a huge drop off in young people voting in 2016. That was one of the reasons that, that Trump won. And they just did not have realistic ideas about what was possible. I, I find this so often I will be talking to a, a young person and I will say, here's something that I think we can do in the next two years to make America better. And they'll then give me a whole list of other problems that I'm not addressing. <laughs> and I'll say, you know, if, you're, if you have a president of the United States in over four years, he or she accomplishes two or three good things, he can leave some problems for the successors. <laughs> And if your idea is you're not a success unless you do everything, then no one's ever a success. And if you teach people that no one's ever a success, you teach defeatism and cynicism. Um, so I think it's very important for that young people really understand how the system works. Um, what counts as success? And not just at the federal level, but at the state and local level, which they pay much less attention to, but where so much of the action really is. I would also strongly encourage the teaching of how to, how to find and assess information. YouTube is such an important source of information for young people and is so systematically misleading, so dangerous. They, they need to be able to use it properly. And, I, and this has real world effects. And what you see is the skepticism that young people have towards scientific medicine. Um, it, it's frightening, but they live in an information environment in which um, the difference between legitimate and illegitimate sources of information between lies and truth is flattened out. Yeah. One other thing I, I would stress, um, and this is maybe a special concern for Jewish education, but I think just generally, I, I think we need to bring physical education much more prominently into the curriculum. Hmm. Um, and I say this as someone who, when I was in school, we had a lot of phys ed back then. I didn't like it. Um, I was, um, this was, I'd become much more serious about it later, but I wasn't then. But what it teaches, among many other things, not just the competence of the body, but it builds you towards sports and to competition in teams and to working in groups. And at a time when the world through our cell phones and our video games is making us so individualistic, um, the practice of working together 
with other boys and girls toward a common goal. What an incredibly important experience that is. And the nature of the regulations imposed on schools nowadays makes it difficult to include phys ed's um, art and music in the curriculum. But I, I think that's a, that's a terrible mistake. I, I, and I look forward to future generations recognizing the mistake and bringing it back. Yeah, some of that I think is the race to nowhere. You know, that's the the movement there of people just how how can we get our kids into these Ivy League and elite colleges and cut out everything else that's that seems superfluous rather than seeing yeah. you know it's valuable to our kids and unfortunately I have a solution for the college. Uh, but this is a, this is a, is a generally considered a cranky idea. I like it. Okay, let's hear. I would have a national high school leaving exam. Completely voluntary, no one has to write it. Um, but not, not like the SAT, not something that asks theoretical questions, but something that tests what you know. Because I think a lot of what college is about is young people come from, out, from high, uh, out of high school with a high school diploma that means nothing to anybody. And uh, an employer says, I, can't even, I, don't even, I don't know what that means. So you go, you let the college admissions people sort it out. Um, and then even though you're a completely practical-minded person, who wants to go straight into selling real estate or um, designing automobiles, you're going to have to go write, if you're in an, go to an academic university, spend four years writing academic papers just to prove you can do it. So if there was some way where someone could say, you know, I, I got a, a double 800 on the national school, leave high school leaving exam. I, I obviously, I learned my high school curriculum. I'm super smart. I'm super motivated. And I'm not interested in college. I want to go straight to work. That there is, there's a, a reliable, trustworthy measure that an employer could look at and say, you know, I'm going to take you on, and I'm not going to pay you much for the first two years, but I'm going to teach you something here. And then you can go to work selling real estate or whatever you want to do. Um, and I, I think we need to think really hard about um, our higher education system because what has happened is because we make it do something that, because we use it as this sorting mechanism, we don't use it to do what it should do, which is to be a place where learning is there for the joy of it. I often think if I ever had to teach a class in the university, um, I would, if I had 30 students, I'd put, you know, two A's, two A minuses, a bunch of B's, C's, and so on, in a hat on the first day of class. <laughs> and they say, okay, everybody reach in and take a grade. Okay, that's your grade. Uh, and now only come if you want to. <laughs> Um, you and Peter Thiel have more in common than uh, we might have expected. Yeah, but I, I love universities and believe in them. I just think we're using them for the wrong things. Yeah. Um, we're, using them, we're using them to support young people. When we, when, when we could give them a system to figure out, let's just show you know, that you've got the brains, you've got the work ethic, you've got a piece of paper, and now go to university if you think it's useful to you, not because it, it answers the question, what do I do when I'm 19? I, I have something more depressing to tell you. I think we might be using high schools in the same way. Okay, last question. <laughs> and usually I play a game called Radical Moderation. Obviously it fits. Today I'm going to play a game called You Be the Head of School. So we're trading places for a minute. Don't worry, I won't ruin your, I don't know what. You, you can keep your role when you're, when you're done with mine. Uh, we have a Young Americans for Freedom Club here at the Shalhevet High School. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a conservative-leaning uh, political uh, action group for students. They invited Ben Shapiro, a uh, well-known uh, radio uh, talk show host, to come speak at the school uh, at their club. There was uh, some real pushback from a number of faculty and students who felt that 
in a school that that really focuses on uh, menschlichkeit, uh, for my non-Jewish listeners, that just means kindness and respect. And uh, someone like Ben, who had, there's no question about his intelligence and his knowledge uh, and his uh, rhetorical skill, but that he is sometimes very mean um, towards uh, people he doesn't agree with or transgender people who, you know, he really likes to poke a little bit at. Um, they really felt like we should not give him a platform and understanding what you said before about, you know, the role that how you decided the Steve Bannon thing, but at a school that's trying to promote values of civil discourse, respect, dialogue, uh, what would you have done? I, I can tell you what we did right when you're done, but what would you have done, uh, in response to the faculty and students and the YAF club that wanted to bring Ben in? Okay. Um, I, I want to say this in a way that isn't, it isn't personal to anybody. Um, because, um, as you said, Ben is obviously a very intelligent person, and his work means a lot to a lot of people. Uh, so this is in no way a particular reference to him. I apply this to the whole catalog of people who make their living by being on TV and radio. Um, the way you gain success in those lines of work is by being provocative. That's what causes people to tune in. Um, and that has its place as a form of, of entertainment, um, and, and a lot of people find it, it meaningful. But my advice to um, a high school conservative club is you are at a point in your life when you're really engaging with the big ideas. Um, let's bring in somebody who maybe is not as famous and maybe won't be as engaging a talker, um, but who will really force you to engage at a deep level with the ideas you believe in who, and who may help other people to incorporate some of those ideas into their thinking and education uh, and maybe challenge so let's sit down together and go through, you know, what, what are the topics that you think are important? And then who are the real scholars and experts in this field? Because um, this is a school, not a TV station, not a radio station. And what we, what we bring here are scholars of all points of view. Man, I'm going to quit, David. You just, I, I let him come. We gave him some, <laughs> some guidelines about being respectful, which the students developed, which from an educational perspective, I thought was awesome. But I think your answer is better. I, you can have my job. How about that? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm not disagreeing. I, I, I said, this is not about, I, I, would, I, I would have the same reaction if um, some, I, I don't know, uh, brought in um, it's, anybody else. It's, it's, it's just, it's, a diff, it's, it's not a personal comment. It's, it's about yep. the line of work um, and what, what the role of such a, of, of people on what their imperatives are and what the imperatives of an educational system are. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful to you for joining us. Um, I, thank you so much, David. Uh, and uh, I'll be in touch. I will do a different outro when you're done. But uh, I really, I know we went well over time. I, I really appreciate it. This was just enlightening and great. And, and thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks to David Frum for joining us in this invigorating podcast. Thanks for listening to The Radical Moderation. Remember to give us five stars on iTunes. Follow us on social media, Twitter handle at Rad Moderation, Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Radical Moderation. And as always, you can email me with any questions or comments at a.segal at shalhevit.org.